You are now listening to the Claim It Podcast with me, your host, Trisha Huffman, your joyologist. On this podcast, I have conversations with people who intrigue and inspire me, getting into the journey of their life. I love hearing people's stories, not just the shiny, this is what I just accomplished bits, but all of it. How did they get to where they are? The ups, the downs, the doubts, the fears, the I'm doing it. And on today's episode, we have Trey Anthony. She is a relationship expert, producer, award-winning writer. Her first book called Black Girl in Love with Herself recently came out. And um, wow, super interesting. I just love talking to people. It brings me so much joy. And um, yeah, Trey, I, I loved her story, her energy, and I'm so excited to get to share it with you. Before we get into the episode, please, if you haven't yet, hit subscribe and leave a review for the podcast. If you leave it on Apple Podcasts, screenshot it and email it to me at podcast at yourjoyologist.com, and I'll send you a gift from my product line. All right, let's get into the episode. Okay, so I like starting out with learning about what was like when people were growing up. So what was life growing up for you like? And especially like high school years where it can feel like you start to feel this pressure of maybe not pressure. Maybe you have this dream like this is what I'm going to do with my life or also this pressure of like, oh, what's next? So like, where were you during those times? I was like, I always knew that I was going to go into the arts um, in some way. So even in high school, I was in this like little girl band group, um, which was called to get her, <laughs> but it was together, but it was to get her. And, Did you use like numbers? Was it like two? Yeah. Number so the number two, two and then it was like, get <laughs> and her. yeah. So we thought we were so cute and amazing. <laughs> and we thought we were like, TLC or something and I did all of the rap parts because I couldn't really sing but I rapped and I wrote all of the lyrics and so and it was like there was myself a Latina girl and an Italian girl so we just thought we were the shit because we thought we had you know crossed every nationality to do this together and so we had a really good time with that and I knew that's what I wanted to do so I knew I wanted to so I would say I knew I wanted to be a rapper and then my plan B was then to be a lawyer because my parents really wanted me to be, go to law school. But my dream was that I was going to be a rapper. Yeah. I wanted to be like the next Queen Latifah, Moni Love, that kind of stuff. Yeah. And where like were your parents, they wanted you to be a lawyer, but like were they supportive of while you had the band or the girl group in high school they and stuff or were they sort cute. of just like that's cute? I, thought, yeah. I think they thought it was cute. My grandmother was really the supporting so my grandmother gave us money to go and record a demo wow. and my grandmother really believed in it. But my grandmother always also had a dream of wanting to be a singer herself. So I think she kind of lived vicariously through me. So she was kind of the person who was kind of like my biggest hype person, hype man, right? Who was like, of course you could do it. Why not? Right. And so um, she really encouraged me. And I think my mother just kind of was like, okay this is a great little hobby that she's going to do. And then it wasn't until grade 12 when I took a drama class with um, one of my favorite teachers who I'm still in touch with today, um, Francine Horvat. 
And she said to me, you have like amazing timing. You're really a great actress and you should think about like going into theater school or something. And that's when it started to something started to shift where I was like, oh, maybe I'll consider being an actor then. Yeah. And was that your first time like doing any sort of acting? I had done a little bit of acting like with like there was like one of my friend's father was kind of like this community activist and he would put on shows at the library and because I was her friend, he would put me in. It was so funny when my first role was to play a cockroach. <laughs> I will never forget that. So you had and a little so, acting experience. No. So that was my first acting role. And so, and I liked it from that. So, um, and my family kind of encouraged that because it was something for us to do on the weekends. And they knew his name was Mr. Lopez, that we would be there with him and he did these little plays and, you know, people like maybe 25 people would come to the library and watch it. So, but I really enjoyed it. And that is kind of when I knew something was happening with me and live audiences. Right. And then I also got into, I ran for school president and I was doing a lot of public speaking. So I knew I liked that as well. So I knew there was something, but I couldn't quite name exactly what I was going to do. But if I was to choose, if I had to choose one, I would have said I was going to be a rapper. Yeah. And so then when high school ends, what did you end up doing? So I ended up going to York University um, and pursuing mass communications and sociology, which was totally different because my mother was like, no, we're not even remotely trying to entertain this anymore. So they were like, you go and do that. And then you enter law school. And so that kind of was like the shift for me. Like I was like, okay, this is what I'm going to do. And then in my third year, this, so my second year, and I was about to go into my third year of university. Um, I heard about the American Academy of Dramatic Arts that they had the summer program for six weeks that you could go down to New York. And so I begged and begged my mother if I could go to New York for the six-week program in the summer. And where were you living at that time? At that time, I was living in Canada. So I was in Brampton, Canada, like a small little town in Canada called Brampton, which is outside of Toronto, about 45 minutes outside of Toronto. And so I begged my mother if I could go to New York and her and my father agreed that they would pay for this six-week summer program. But then I would come back and then start back university my third year, right? So, sorry, yes, was it my third year? Yes, it was a three-year program, yeah. So I said, okay. And then when I got to New York, that's when I really got bitten by the acting bug because I was just like immersed in acting and... Uh, one of the students said, oh, the Chris Rock show is holding auditions. Um, and we weren't supposed to audition. We weren't allowed to. And I went anyways. <laughs> and when I got there, I auditioned, but I didn't make it. But I then asked one of the interns who was working there. I was kind of like, oh, how did you get this job? And blah, 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 blah. And she told me they were hiring for interns. And I applied and I got the internship. And so I left the summer program. I left university. And that's how I started working at the Chris Rock show. 
Wow. So this is before you, the, the program didn't even end. You were yeah, just the program like, didn't even end. I, I I'm going to hop like on this. In, I think I was maybe in like the second week of the program or something, the second or third week. And then I just left it and decided to work at the Chris Rock show. Yeah. And what did your parents think of that? Since they especially were like paying for you to go there. <laughs> yeah. I think they kind of, they were just like, she's lost her damn mind. But they were impressed that it was the Chris Rock show. And so I think they thought, okay, well, you weren't like, I'm just going to stay in New York and make it work. You had (laughs) something. It was something. And I think they thought, okay, well, she's going to be there for the summer. And then I decided to stay. And then I worked on the Chris Rock show for about two years. So, yeah, about a year and a half, just over a year and a half. And then I came back to Canada. Yeah. Got it. And so Chris Rock, were you as an intern the whole time or did you end up? So I was an intern. And then I moved up to um, writer's assistant. And then I moved up to audience department where I was programming the audience and stuff like that. And, you know, um, calling people about their tickets and seating them and blah, 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 blah. So that was the first paying gig that um, I got was to be in the audience department. So I kind of moved through there. And then during that time, I also was in like a small sketch because it was like a sketch comment. So they put me in that. So I was really excited about that. And I just kind of thought, oh, I've made it now. You know, I'm in a sketch <laughs> for the Chris Rock show. Right. Were you thinking like, oh, if I hang out here and do any job they yeah. say, then eventually right. I'll of course be able to like audition and make it on yeah. the so show. That's what I really thought was going to happen. Like I thought this was like my golden ticket to like the big times. Yeah. Yeah. And so then what made you leave or did the show end? Yeah, the show got canceled and the show ended. And then I came back to Toronto. But at that time, when I came back to Toronto, I really was under the impression like I was really kind of feeling myself like I was like, oh, I was like in New York, I was doing the Chris Rock show. And so I just assumed that now that I had these credentials behind me, that I would be able to just come to Canada and get a job. And, you know, they would hire me and I would get a fancy agent and that didn't happen. So I got an agent and then the agent started sending me out on stuff and the stuff that they were sending me out on was so stereotypical, like crackhead number one, baby mama number two, girl on welfare number three. And I was just so disillusioned and frustrated with the whole industry And I remember I came home one day and I said to my grandmother, they're just giving me these shitty roles and it's just shit and I hate it. And my grandmother, and this was the line that always just made me start my own writing career. She said, well, if they're giving you shit, then write your own damn shit. (laughs) And that was how I started writing The Kink in My Hair. That's how it all came about. Yeah, I had never looked at anything before in my life. And it was just kind of out of necessity. I became a writer because I was, really frustrated at what was being offered to me as an actor. And when your grandmother said that to you, did it immediately like strike something within you or did you keep, you know, so you were like, okay, I'll write something like. Yeah. And And I was also one of those people, like my grandmother to me was like a God. So if my grandmother said I could do something, I believed her. Right. And so my grandmother always instilled in me, like she was kind of like, you know, you're the best, like, why not? Like, whatever, right? And I was like, oh, okay, grandma said I could do it. So I just did it. And so that's how I started the the writing of the kink. It was just because of that, yeah. And how long, like, at that time too, 
are you then like, do you have some job that's paying the bills? Are you living with your parents? You know, are you still showing up at additions? Yes. No, I, I, no, I'm living on my own at that point in time. And I'm also working, um, and funny enough, I was engaged to, um, my high school sweetheart kind of thing, like, you know, and so we were saving up to get married and I started working part-time in a youth shelter, I'm sorry, a abused women's shelter. And so I would work that and do nights there. And then in the daytime, I would go on auditions or write. And then I also started doing stand-up. And so um, at that point in time, I started doing stand-up and there was this show called The Nubian Show um, at Yuck Yucks. And it was like an all-Black um, comedy show. And it had like a predominantly all-Black audience. And it was like one of the hardest audience gigs ever. And I didn't even know that the first time I started. And so that was the first time I entered stand-up. So I had no idea. Like someone just said, oh, you should do the Nubian show. And I was like, oh, okay. And I didn't know what it, and I had no when you idea. Say, when you say hardest audience gigs ever, does that mean sort of like the hardest audience to win over? Yeah. Like to get them to laugh? Ass off stage, Got right? it. They're like, yeah. You're like, that. you have to impress us. Yeah, like, impress us, right? And especially as a woman, there was this thing at that time, like women weren't funny and blah, 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 blah. So when they asked me and they were like, oh, we don't have enough women on the bill. I didn't realize it's because all of the women scared <laughs> to go. And so I was so naive. Like, I didn't know anything about comedy. You're like, like, awesome. I'll yeah, take so I was it. Like, okay. I'll do I it. Out. Like, <laughs> yeah. So I just went up there and I had no idea. It was the first time I'd done stand up. The and first time? The first time I've ever done stand up. I did the Nubian show. Yeah. And I had no idea. Like, I even remember when I came home. Maybe uh, that's better, though, that you yeah, had Yeah, because I had no idea. And I think that has been the story of my life. Like, I never have an idea of how, like, even when I wrote The Kink, like, I didn't realize that usually someone does, like, a first draft, a second draft, a third draft, and then they meet with a dramaturge, and then the dramaturge, you know, edits it and stuff. I just wrote my first draft and put it up, right? Like, I had no idea. Like, I just, in a way... Um, being ignorant of the process really helped me in my career. Cause I think if I knew the process, I would have been a bit disillusioned or not as confident, but I was like, Oh, okay. I think I could do that. And so that was kind of like the same thing with the standup. Like they were like, Oh, come and do the Nubian show and you'll get $50 for a 10 minute set. And to me at that point, that sounded like 500 million. Right. Cause I was so broke. So I was like $50 for 10 minutes. <laughs> so I was like, okay. And so I did a 10 minute set and the audience loved me and they stood up and everyone was like, oh my God, she's so good. And I just did this whole thing on like having a Jamaican family, my mother, my grandmother. And, you know, I imitated my mom, my grandmother, and I just told stories about like, you know, what arguments look like in our family, um, my grandmother's ignorance around like technology and stuff. And people just really loved it. And so I became a regular on that. And then the guy who organized that room, Kenny Robinson, he got a TV deal. And it was kind of like the equivalent to Mad TV or SNL. And he brought me on as an actor and writer of the show. And that's how I kind of moved into TV was through that. So, yeah. Awesome. So then by that time, I'm guessing since you 
you do that comedy, you get that response, you get offered this job that's like very legitimate, you're doing it. So then when you tell people you're writing the screenplay, I'm guessing that they're just like awesome and not like, yeah, sure, Trey, you know, because I think that that can be a challenging thing too. that when people like are like, you can't do that. Like, what are you talking about? Or they like feel like, okay, great. Good luck with that. Like, yeah, realize how hard it's going to place. Like, what was people's responses? Or did you even tell people that you were writing? I didn't really tell people at that time. Like, I just knew that. And at that time, I thought it was going to be a one woman show. And I felt because I was doing the Kenny Robinson show, and I was doing a lot of these comedic roles. I wanted to do something dramatic. And I felt I was being very pigeonholed as the funny girl. And I always wanted to do, you know, much more dramatic and serious roles. So I wrote this play thinking it would be a one woman show. And at that time too, I was also following the template. I had been reading the autobiography of Whoopi Goldberg and they had said that she had done a one woman show and that's how she started. So I was like, oh, if Whoopi did a one woman show, well, I'm going to do a one woman show. So that's kind of how I thought about it. So I didn't really tell anyone. I just kind of said, I'm working on a project. And it wasn't until the kink um, came out. So we did it in like a 50 seat theater and the first night sold out and then we put it up for another night and that sold out. And then the third night it sold out again. And then I was like, oh, I think I'm on to something here. Yeah. So when you first, uh, yeah, like put it out and you're like saying we right now, like who's the we? And like, what was, again, was it just you like, oh, I'm going to do, yeah, like this, was, was it a one minute show or like? Yeah. Funny enough, it was, um, when I say we, it was, um, I had known like a bunch of actors. So, you know, when you go on audition calls, right, you'll see the same people over and over for the same damn role, right? So there was a lot of actors who we knew each other because we were all going for crack at number one, right? So we were in the same way. Sorry. Room, right? Like I laugh and I'm like, it's really not no, funny. It's terrible. We were all yeah. there going for <laughs> crack at number one. And we were all sitting there going, we don't fucking want to do this. Nobody wants to do this shit, but we got bills to pay, right? And so as I was meeting these women and various women, I would say to them, I'm writing this play, right? And so because the play was monologue driven, I then wanted to hear how it sounded aloud in front of a live audience. So I said to these women, I said, hey, do you want to be in this so I can hear it? And I'm not even going to be in it. I just want to sit in the audience and take notes and hear what monologue works and what doesn't work, right? So, they so you course, were sort of like workshopping it for I was yourself. It for myself, yes. And, and I, at that time, were you visualizing it though as like it will be a play? I'm just workshopping there. Where like were you seeing it as a movie or no? Or I was seeing it as a one woman show, like a one woman oh. theatrical show that I would Got do. It. All so of you're the still on the part. one woman show. Yeah. Okay. So that's how I envisioned it. So I thought, you know, I would do all of the parts, but I wanted to sit in the audience and hear it and see what worked. And then that's when we put it up, like I said, in that 50 seat theater. And then it kept selling out, selling out. And then the response that I got from everybody was like, oh, my God, these actresses are so good. You should keep them. And then I realized I didn't have a role for myself anymore because (laughs) all of these actors now had these parts. Right. This is really amazing. I wrote like a one woman show for myself and then you don't. (laughs) I didn't have a part. I didn't have a part for myself. So I was like, holy shit. And then 
the other response that I got was people said, we really loved it, but it was really heavy, right? Because some of the monologues dealt with like incest. There was another monologue on police brutality, like a woman losing her son to gun violence. Then there was another monologue about a woman coming out to her family and the homophobia within her Caribbean family. And then there was another one on like shadism, you know, so there was like a lot of just really heavy stuff. So people said, we really loved it, but we felt like it was just like hit after hit after hit. And they said, we kind of miss your comedy. Like there's no comedy in it. Now it's really heavy. And so that's when I sat down and I was like, oh God, I know this isn't what I wanted to do, but I'm going to write a comedic part for myself. And I will be in between these monologues to lift them up. And then I kind of was like, okay, where would all of these women in all of these various age ranges and different lives and, you know, be like, what would make sense for them to be? And growing up, my aunt had a hairdressing salon and I had grown up in a hairdressing salon. So I knew that. And I said, oh, I'm going to place them in the hairdressing salon. And so then I wrote the part for Novelette, who was the owner of the hair salon, which was my part. And so that's how it all came about. And that's how the kink, the play came about. And then, you know, fast forward, it became this really huge hit. And then it got developed into a TV show. So that's kind of how it all went. Yeah. And again, like when you're again, when you're first starting this, it's like you're just like you just found a 50 seat theater or something, whatever for yourself. And then like once you really develop it with the hair salon and everything like that, too, like how does that is that you like going to theaters? Like, how does that work? You're like, I wrote this awesome thing and people like no, it. like so how does it? So the first thing we did, we applied to the Toronto Fringe Festival, right? So, you know, the Fringe. So even back then, because I I, did, I knew nothing about theater. So even one of the actors said to me, oh, Trent, yeah, I know nothing about theater, which is why I'm asking. Yeah. So the <laughs> Toronto, they, they were like, you should apply to the Toronto Fringe Festival. And I thought, because I had never heard of it before. And yet it was one of the most popular independent festivals for up and coming artists. And it's done by a lottery system to get in. Right. And then they give you, you know, they pay for all of your marketing and they also give you a, a venue to put your show up in. Right. And you get about 10 performances and you're listed in like all of the local papers and everything. So it was a big deal, but I never knew anything about the fringe. And so when she said to us, let's put it in the fringe festival, I thought she said French. And I was like, the play's not French. I don't know how to speak French. Why are we going to do this in French? Right. And then she was like, no, idiot. It's fringe. Right. And I was like, oh, okay. And then I was like, why not? And, but what at that time it was like $500 to apply. And I was so broke then, I didn't even have the $500. And my partner at the time, lent me the $500 to apply to the fringe. And I was like, I'll pay you back if we get in. And if we don't, we've lost our money. Like there's no two ways about it. And so you go there that night and it's kind of like, you know, like the lottery with that lottery machine thing that spins the balls around and you have a ball and they're spinning it all around. And then they called our number. And then the rest is kind of like, I was like, fuck, we got it. And that was wow. Yeah. So you have to pay $500 just to get in the lottery. Yes, and then the lottery. if you don't get chosen, it's just because your ball didn't get chosen. Just because your ball didn't so get chosen. So it is really a freaking lottery. It really is a lottery. Like- <laughs> and so that's why with the Fringe Festival, it's very hit and miss. So some shows are really great and some shows are just like, what the hell happened? 
Wow. And so our show became like the buzz of the fringe. Like people just started coming out. And to this day, they've said like the kink has been the highest box office um, show in the history of the fringe because it just broke all box office records and people just kept coming out and it just sold out and became just this huge hit. And so when that happened, these theater companies started to hear about the show selling out every night. And that's when Theater Pass Marai, the artistic director from there, came to me and said, we have a 30-year anniversary sp- special coming on and we want the kink to be the opening um, show in our season. And so that's how it started to evolve. And then from Theater Pass Marai, we were in a, like a 200-seat theater. It started again with the same thing, selling out, selling out. And that's when Mervish Productions came along. They came out to see it because it was this buzz. And Mervish is like our biggest commercial theater producers in Canada. So they produce things like The Lion King, Hairspray, all of those shows. And they had never done a Canadian production. So when they came to us, everybody thought like this was crazy because they had never done a Canadian production, much less a Black show. People were like, they're doing a Black show plus a Canadian. And then they put us in the 2000 seat theater. So that's how it all kind of evolved. And while got we were it. Mervish, that's when I got the TV deal. Yeah. It's so interesting because, yeah, like, I'm sure it sounds like with how good it was, you it would have happened at some point. But, you know, just the fact of like the chance of yeah. paying the $500 that your ball will get picked. Yeah. <laughs> right. Like, you know, like, but, and that is why I'm just such a big believer in destiny and just knowing like sometimes things are just beyond your control right like all you can do is just show up and just say okay what does the universe have in mind for me because if I look back at all of the ways that fate could have gone in a different way I would be here today right but it just it just all seemed to just kind of all align at the same time and it was just so crazy like how it all started And so, yeah, and that's how it all came about, you know? And that mentality that you just described, is that something that, like, you've had for a long time? Or where do you feel like that started to develop? Well, it's funny. I talk about this in my book. um, And it's around, like, manifestation and visualization and positive thinking. And I said, growing up, um, my grandmother, when I was born as a baby, I had three gray hairs in the middle of my head, right? And my grandmother would say to me from as as long as I can remember, she would say, you are born with luck. The, The God has marked you as his child. So wherever you go, you're going to have luck because you have gray hair. That means you're special, right? And I think it was her way of not making me feel so insecure about things. So I, for my whole life, walked around thinking people who didn't have this mark in their hair were so unlucky. And I was just like, oh, I know God is taking care of me because he's marked me as his child, right? And so I had this belief and it wasn't until I got older, I was like, that really was superstitious, right? But I grew up thinking that I was really lucky and that God was looking after me because my grandmother would always say, you're God's picnic, right? Which is like, you're God's child, right? In Jamaican. So she would say that to me. And so she would be like, wherever you go, you are born with luck. Because God has marked you. And so I was like, okay. And like I said, I believe her. And so that's how the positive thinking started for me. So I never questioned that good things couldn't happen to me. 
I just believed it because from I was little, my grandmother told me good things are going to happen to me because I've been marked by God. Right. And so that's how it shifted my whole mentality. Because people are always like, why are you so optimistic? And how do you blah, blah, blah? And how do you have faith? And I said, I, I was born with gray hair. Yeah, it was, no, I was kidding. born with three gray hairs. <laughs> and my grandmother told me I was born with luck. <laughs> and as silly as it is, that's really how it started. So my grandmother, anytime something bad would happen, or quote, you know, I didn't get something, she would be like, oh, don't worry, because God has a bigger plan with, for you. You're born with luck. And so I was like, okay, grand. And like I said, I believed anything my grandmother told me, I believed, right? And so I just thought she was this really just like this wise mystic, and she knew stuff. And my grandmother would, she was very like, my grandmother would read tea leaves and people would come over to have her read their fortune and we went to like a psychic church so I really believe like my psychic grandmother church. knew all so that's what I kind of grew up in in this kind of like realm of mystic magical stuff and so I didn't question it and so if my grandmother read your tea leaves and said good things were going to happen to you you were like my grandmother said good things gonna happen to me people come to her and pay her to read their tea leaves so my grandmother knows shit <laughs> so that's what I so that's kind of how I grew up. Yeah. Isn't it like just thinking about that? It's like, wow, it's really, really easy to just believe it's just a and good things are going to happen. But why do we make it so fucking why hard? But it's like, just my grandma said, okay. Because I'm a mom. I do the same thing to my son, right? Like, I'm like, oh, you're great. You're wonderful. You, you, you know, th- this is going to be a good day for you. Just believe it's going to be a good day. And he believes me, like, you know, like he's like nearly two and he's like, yeah, <laughs> right. Like, so I think it's people, children will believe whatever you tell them. And then it really creates their belief system. Yeah. And so that has been something that has continued even in my adulthood. Like I just have this belief system that the universe is looking out for me. And so I will expect good things to happen. Trisha here bringing you a brief interruption to tell you about my favorite new product from my product line. Yes, I have a whole line of products with affirmations, phrases to empower you. Everything from fuck your fears to I am magic. So there's something for everyone. But something new is my daily intention, connection, and reflection journal. On every right side of the page, it's a wire-bound journal, which is nice for being able to lay flat. There are prompts. Daily prompts are the same every day. They're easy things. You can do it in a couple minutes. You can do the first half in the beginning of the day, the second half at the end of the day. You can do the whole thing at any time of the day. So you name three I am statements. This could be an affirmation, like I am a badass who can put anything I put do anything I put my mind to, or it could be calling yourself into something you want in the future. Like I am a best-selling author. So it gets you to be intentional. What do you want for yourself? What do you want to believe for yourself? Then I choose to feel. Naming two feelings you want to come back to throughout the day. Like I'm approaching my day with ease. I want to feel free today. I choose to feel grateful today. I choose to feel alive today. Then there's your top three want to do items, which can be like, you know, your to do items, or you could be listing like in this week, in this life, I want to do. So this could be used for like very tactical today and dreaming into your future. 
Next, I'm especially grateful. List your what you're grateful for. Next, wins and joys. This and the next one are the ones I think are the most important. Naming your wins and joys of today. Little stuff like my kids ate the dinner that I bought for them at the restaurant. <laughs> That's such a win, right, parents? Joy. I, re- you know, I heard from one of my best friends today. I had this awesome conversation today. That brought me joy. So naming wins and joys. I got a reply back from that person that I love on Instagram, whatever it is. So naming the wins and joys. Doing this every day or whenever you remember helps to remind you in the moment to celebrate everyday wins and joys. And the last thing is I acknowledge myself for. Acknowledge yourself daily. We so are hard on ourselves and beat ourselves up for what we have not yet done or what we don't think we did good enough or what we're not good enough for. What can you acknowledge yourself for right now? And then on the left side of every page, it's lined pages. So you can use that extra space to journal, to dream, to write out more action items, brainstorm it out. Go check it out. There's two different covers in my shop. It's called the Daily Connection Journal. All right, let's get back to the episode. What inspired you to write this book? Mm -hmm. Was that something too, like you always like, oh, I'm going to write a book one day or I'm going to write this? Or was there a moment like, oh, I need to share this with the world? Well, it's funny. I've always been a big self-help person. Like I love self-help books. I don't think there's a self-help book out there that I haven't read. And I was also a big believer in stuff like The Secrets and, um, you know, Positive Mindset. So I, I really started to study that. And then one of my favorite books was You Can Heal Your Life by Louise Hay, right? So when I read that book, I just thought like the world had opened up to me. Like it was just everything that I had ever imagined. And I felt it was kind of like the university degree of what my grandmother was trying to tell me, but she didn't have the education, right? So it was everything that my grandmother had instilled in me, but it was kind of on a higher level at that point. So I became a huge fan of Hay House. And then I don't know if when you started, um, I don't know um, if you've been a follower of Hay House, but then they switched to the subscription model where you had to pay for to listen to some of their radio shows and stuff like that. And I was going to pay for it. And then I was looking on their website and I got really discouraged about the lack of diversity. And I was like, I can no longer play into this, right? Um, I said, you know, I can't ignore the fact that a company and a belief system that I really love is really white, right? Because you're then on their website and just like looking at all the authors and it was primarily. And I just was like, I can't put money towards that if I believe that this isn't at my core of what, what I stand for, right? And so then I approached Hay House. Like, it's funny, you know, a friend of mine sent me this thing that said Hay House was looking for diverse authors, right? And that they were doing this kind of like training program or something for Hay House authors. And so I looked at that and I said, oh, okay, this sounds interesting. But then it was in the UK and I was in Canada. So I was like, oh, I don't qualify for that. So then I just wrote a query letter to Hay House. And I said exactly what I told you. I said, I've been a huge fan. And, but a lot of times I go to your workshops and events, I feel like I'm the only black person there, person of color. And I said, as much as your books speak to me, 
I just feel there's another level that you're missing in diversity. And I want to be that person for you. And I've already built up a following. I have a following and this is who I am. And this is my platform. And then they responded, which was, it was just like so ridiculous. <laughs> they were like, oh, okay. But like, did you even have like a book idea pitch or just like me? I'll figure out a book. Like, look, you need. Yes, I had a book idea. Pitch. This was so funny. This was me. Um, I had a book idea pitch. And I thought what I had was a book proposal, but I had never written a book proposal. So in my mind, I was like, how hard could this be? Right? Uh, <laughs> I think because we were just talking about how we had, yeah, you're just, your first book is out and I'm in the yeah. process right now. And I was like, Ooh. how hard this could be? I could do a book proposal. So I just kind of thought what I thought a book proposal would be. And then I sent it into the editor with this pitch of like diversity and blah, 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 blah. Okay. So that was included in your, yes, like in my first, first initial contact. Email. And I was like, this is the book that I want to write. And this is what I'm thinking of. And this is my pitch, blah, 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 blah. And she wrote back and I, I, we laughed to this day about it. She said, so Allison, who's in acquisitions, I don't know if you've dealt with Allison. Yeah, she's who bought my book, I believe. Yes. <laughs> so Allison wrote back and said, I love your tenacity. <laughs> and she said, I truly know what you speak of is true. We have really started to address the lack of diversity in Hay House. And this is amazing. And she goes, but it's quite obvious to me that you've never written a book proposal before. <laughs> wrong what you said me is just like totally wrong <laughs> and I was like oh and so she goes can you maybe come back with something of like what a standard book proposal would look like and so then I said to her is there any way you could send me one so I can kind of like you know figure out what's included and she was so gracious that she sent me one and I went away for like six weeks and I just basically kind of plugged in all of the things that was in what the standard book proposal looked like. And then I sent it back into them. And then it took me like a good four or five months to hear from them. Like it was like, and I, every kind of week I would send her a little email, go, hey, Allison, what's up? Blah, 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 blah. And it just felt like, and then at one point I was just like, oh my God, they're not going to take it. They're not going to do it. And then um, she emailed me and said, oh, we're going with it. And so the, the gist of the book was supposed to be about love and relationships, right? And how as Black women, we can manifest this wonderful, great, because at that point I was in a wonderful relationship when I thought, and I was like, this is how I manifested this wonderful relationship. I wrote this list and, you know, I did my inner work. I went to therapy and I attracted where I am and blah, 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 blah. And I was like, this is the book I'm going to write. And then five months before my first draft was due, my life blew up in my face and my partner sent me a text and said, I don't want to do this anymore. And I was like, pardon? What? Who? <laughs> and I called up Melody and I was like, I can't write this book because I felt like a fraud. Like I was like, how am I going to give relationship advice to women if I obviously missed the tsunami that was hitting my own damn relationship, right? And I then said what I can write because I started to be very reflective and I was just, you know, I was broken wide open. I was really depressed. And I said, what I can write is how I got myself in this mess and how I ignored all of the signs and how I gave over the job to someone else to love me instead of me loving myself. And I was more invested in someone writing hashtag couple goals 
under my picture than my own happiness. So I never checked in with me to see if I was happy, but I did check in on how many likes I got on Instagram, right? If I put up a picture of me and my partner. And I was like, what is that about for you that you were so invested in this image that you decided to ignore your own happiness? And I said, I know there's a lot of women who are out there who are looking at their own lives going, I may have checked up all of the check marks of what you're supposed to have by this and this and this, but you're in an existence that you no longer recognize. Like you wake up and you go, how the hell did this become my life? And what happens when someone walks out on you and every single hope and dream that you had was instilled in that person and now they're gone. So that's the book. And that's how it became a Black girl in love with herself. Wow. All of it. What a story. Yeah. (laughs) Because like, yeah, I mean, first of all, it's just amazing that like you weren't a like, oh, I have this like dream to write this book. This is the book I want to write. Like, let me go find an agent and pitch it. Like how it happened was because you were pissed off that the publisher whose books you enjoyed (laughs) was like primarily white. And so then you're like, well, I'll change this. And like, uh, let me write them a book. And like that, that inspired you to be like, all right, let me write this book. And then. Yeah. So you were going to have it be about like manifesting the perfect relationship that you thought you had. Yes. And it blew up in your face. So then you write, change it to loving yourself. And I make up then as you're writing it, you're like really fucking going through it. Like you're like in the like, which is kind of like the best. Like your book has to be filled with like the most real, raw, truest stuff because you were in it. I was in it. And my friends all who have read it was like, you know what this is? They were like, this is your fucking Adele album, right? Like when Adele was, they were like, this is it. They were like, this is the book you were supposed to write because it's just so raw and vulnerable. And it really was a healing for myself. Like I had to trace back. Like I look at like all of my childhood stuff. I looked at all of the messaging that I got as a young black girl of like how you work hard and you know, and by this and this age, you should have this. And, you know, how I got the messaging that, you know, it's more important to have money than happiness. Um, It was more important to be strong than vulnerable. So I did all of that. And then also to look at how did I show up as a little child in this relationship, begging for someone to love me and not a fully actualized adult woman so that's Mm. really what the book is about like it's like half memoir but a lot of self-help and you know there's tips at the end of each chapter for you to do the work and ask yourself some really raw questions honest questions because I feel especially now before this whole pandemic happened we were so busy being busy that it stopped us from actually stopping and going hey how does this feel to you? How are you feeling about your life? And so at this point, when I started writing the book, I was like, ending a five-year relationship. My partner had walked out on me. I had a two-week-old adopted baby. Oh, my <laughs> goodness. That yeah. happened. That was at the same time. Yeah. A two-week-old adopted baby. So if you're in a five-year relationship, did you, you were working on getting an adoption as I'm in this relationship with someone for five years? As I'm in this relationship, yes. So I brought home my son, and that's when my partner said, I don't want to do this. Yeah. You bring home what you must have to it. It is hard, right, to adopt a child. 
Yeah, we both of us were in the adoption process together. So we started. And it is very challenging, right? Yes, very challenging. Very. We were in this adoption process for two years. And then when we got the baby, that's when she said she didn't want to do it. And so I had a two-week-old baby. I had a breakup. And then this all happened in December. And then the pandemic happened in February. So all of these things were happening to me. And I was like, are you freaking And you had to like rewrite. The book. Had you started, had you like already been written the original part of the book or some of it? Like, were you already in it? And then also yes, like, I had written, I had already, yeah, I had already started writing and I already kind of knew this was the book I was going to write. And then all of these things happened. So then I was very fortunate that Melody gave me an extension and my timeline got moved up because all of this shit happened. And then also, too, what worked in my favor is that we actually had the pandemic. So everything kind of got all you know, backlogged and slowed down. And so it gave me a chance to really, because then also too, what was good now in retrospect, I realized, you know, the universe was working for me is that all of my gigs, like my talks, my plays and all of my live events all got canceled. So all I really could do was sit home and write this book, right? Because I had nothing else to do. Yep. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) So that's kind of how it all came about, girl. Yeah. And so how do you feel now? Like, so that all happened how long ago, actually? Like, that was 2000, the end of 2019. That, that yeah, because my son yeah. right now is 16, 15 months old. Yeah. And when, and, uh, I, yeah. Yeah. And so, like, did the process of writing the book, I make up, like, heal you a lot because yeah like you kind of can't escape yourself what I find now in writing my own book which is like yeah I'm sharing personal stories from my life and like ways to probably it to your own life like that it has me like revisiting stories that I've told myself about my past in some ways you know what I mean like where I was like oh, oh yeah wait a minute Trisha like hmm or like and just like seeing myself in different ways when I'm writing about it. so like yeah what was like that whole process now and like now post that and then the book being out in the world too was that like a big thing of like now I'm sharing this with the world yeah it's so funny like it definitely made me sit down and think about just all of the things that I didn't question were true or not true about me what things really were part of my grandmother's story that became mine what things were my mother's story that I also thought belonged to me Um, I also looked at like, how did it happen that someone like me who was born to a single mom who was 17, grew up in Toronto housing, which is equivalent to the projects, had this success story and how I always kind of walked around with this belief of kind of like this imposter syndrome and the success guilt and why that is why I also stayed in a relationship because there was a part of me that thought, oh my gosh. I'm so lucky that someone so successful and so intelligent and self-made has picked a little girl from a project like me. So there was a lot of things in that relationship that I chose to overlook because I didn't think I was worthy in that sense. Like I thought I was the lucky one for her to pick me instead of me going, hey, you know, like you're quite a big fucking deal too. Like you've done so much, but I still showed up as that little girl who was growing up in the projects who no one was betting on. Right. I and think so, love yeah. messes us up so bad. Like, yeah. that, you know, like I like, 
you know, like started, like had my self-love journey at 15 started when I almost committed suicide and I went through my life so powerfully and so strong and believing in myself. But my relationships and every time I would, you know, like just this needing people, you know, needing a man to want me to like me, even if I didn't like him. But so then that meant something about me. If I could say I had a boyfriend or someone liked me and yeah, like, it's just interesting how it really messes with us. And I've had some of my own realizations in the last, like, yeah, I like went through a transition with my kid's father, um, of like, Oh wait, like, there's a lot of things I like, why have I been putting up with these things? Like I'm such a strong woman and I'm so awesome. And I believe in myself and look at all these amazing things that I've done. And why have I been, why do I, why did I choose you as a partner? Like, and it's not even that something is wrong with that person, but just, you know, like just, yeah, it's so fucked up. I think that so many women do that in different ways. In so many different ways. And, And that's what I, this book really helped me to like examine that and kind of go, wow. And then also look at my patterns, right? Of how I chose people and how I also rejected people who were more healthier and better for me. And um, why did I choose things that felt hard, right? Because it felt very familiar to me as well, right? So there was a lot of things that in the book I, I talk about and so, and then having a son, like having a, a child, I'm sure you, you know this as a mother, when there's somebody else counting on you, there was a part of me what was just like, you better get your shit together because you know what it feels like to have a mom who isn't quite all together <laughs> and you're not worthy. Of, you know, your son is worthy of a mom who's healed and well and is trying her best to be the best version of herself possible. And so I was really committed to my own well-being. And I decided like I was not going to date for a year. I was not going to get in a relationship. And that was something very new for me because I had a pattern of going from one relationship to another and, you know, and pouring everything into someone else. And I was like, no, everything that you would give to someone else, you're going to start doing for yourself. And so that's how it became this thing of like, what does self-love and self-care look like for you as a Black woman, right? And being a Black girl in love with herself, what does that mean? Like, if you loved yourself the same way that you loved other people, can you imagine what you would be? And that's what I kept saying to myself. Yeah. So it was like that. But do you still have to tell yourself that some days or every day? Definitely. Like, it's an affirmation every day. And, and I always say to people, like, some days are really good. Some days I'm like, you've got this. You're the shit. And then there's other days I'm crying at the drive through at McDonald's going, you're a lonely bitch. <laughs> right? <laughs> But no, I mean, I think that like, I asked you that hoping like your answer would be yes, because that's another point of the podcast. I think like people just feel like, oh, they have this aha. You, no. you wrote the book. Like, no. so you're done. No. Black girl in love no. with herself. End of no. story. Like, but it's like a daily thing. It's our minds, thing. our minds are so creative. And it's like, yeah, you're like, what? What did I just yeah. say to myself? Like, what am I believing right now? Like, that's, but being able right? to. Like, you, you remember the, you've been the old you for longer than you've been the new you. Right. So that's what I say. And it's something that there's no final destination. Like I, I tell the clients that I work with, I said many years ago, um, I went on this weight loss kick and I lost like a hundred pounds. Right. And I had bought the Stairmaster and then I got down to my ideal weight and I was like, oh, wow, I'm here. And so I gave away my Stairmaster. I was like, I don't need it. <laughs> That's the 
most amazing thing I've ever heard. <laughs> and then, of course, two years later, I was bigger than when I started. But I really thought I'd done the work. I'm good, right? That's and so I gave it away. Amazing. And so I always think <laughs> you cannot give away the freaking stairmaster, right? But that's what oh, I my God. Thank you for that. Because it's funny because, you know, I like to give that like example of like, no, when you reach your fitness goals, it's not over. Yeah. Like you're not like done. And you literally. <laughs> gave it away. I said, who wants it? I don't need it. I've lost all my weight. I'm happy. I'm down to goal. And I gave That's it away. Amazing. <laughs> right. Yeah, because I like I like to use the same example of like, oh, mental yeah. <laughs> fitness is the same or whatever. But yeah. you like literally have the best example yeah. of it. So that's <laughs> what I always tell my clients that you're always on the freaking stairmaster. And some days you, you do a really amazing workout. Some days it's a bit harder. Some days you don't even get on the shit, right? So that's what it's about. Self-care is like that. And being the best version of yourself, some days you're really great and some days you're great. But as long as you don't give away the damn Stairmaster, don't give it away. <laughs> that's the analogy I use. <laughs> so good. And now, like, yeah, what's up for you now that the book is out? And like, yeah, do you have, are you planned for more? Yeah, I'm on this big press tour. I'm really loving it. I'm starting to talk to people about spinning it off in some kind of version of TV or, you know, I just got off the phone with um, someone who just called me about two days ago saying, I just see this as like a TV series, like of like self-love and a journey of a woman going through. And he was like, I just put your book down. And he goes, I just saw it. And so he was like, I would love to talk to you about developing. So those kind of things and conversations are happening, which has been really amazing. And just reading people's response to the book, which I love, like men are also reading it and saying, oh, I bought it and I'm giving it to my sister or my mother. Or, um, you know, I had this Jewish woman who stalked me on um, Instagram and was like, I know I'm not a black girl in love with myself, but I could have put the book down. And she goes, I gave it to all of my friends. I was just like, you've got to read this. So that's what I really love that people... And I do believe that, that when you write from a place of truth and authenticity, it will transcend race, it will transcend gender, it will transcend class, because people will find themselves in your truth, because they know you're not hiding anything. And so that's what makes it relatable, because we've all been there when we've been on the bathroom floor, or we've with me. I love to look in the mirror when I'm crying. I don't know what that's about for me, but I love to look in the mirror and see the tears. And so we all know that feeling. We've all been there where, you know, you drive to McDonald's because you rather eat your feelings than acknowledge them. We've all been there where we feel like a failure because everybody around us seems to be having the most successful life on Instagram, except us. And it's not like you don't want everybody to be happy, but you're just like, well, what the fuck happened to me, right? And so, and we've all been there where you, like for me as adopted mom, I was like, somebody is going to come and take this child away and realize that I don't have my shit together, (laughs) right? And every mother thinks that no matter what, they're like, I'm just winging it. And I'm just hoping (laughs) it will all come together, right? So, and that's what I talk about in my book all of the times where I'm just like, oh my God, how is this my life? But here I am. Yeah, totally. I mean, and especially like what we were talking about before with like the love thing that like, yes, you wrote the book, Black Woman 
in love with herself. And yes, for black women, but I make up anyone, especially yes. women can read it and would relate. Like, of course, stories are different and things, but the, the programming of what, you know, like what you said of like, oh, what I should be, what this, like we yes. all have this. And that's what my book is about. My book is called F, F the shoulds do the once. It's about eliminating the, like the shoulds from your life. And that's like yeah. examining all of these shoulds that Should. we have that we don't even ha realize we have and like how they affect us. Exactly. And that's like, so yeah, like I make up, yeah, you don't have to be black to go <laughs> read your book yes. and get a lot from it. Yes. And that has been the great thing is that I just love people's response and the reviews and um, even um, like I've been getting messaging from the people at Barnes and Noble who are like, this is the first time we've seen people actually come in and buy not just one copy, but two or three or four. And they're like, I'm buying this for a friend. I'm buying this for my mother. I need to, you know, give it out. And so that has been really great of just seeing how people are really responding to the truth, you know, of what it's like of, yeah, when you, you feel like, your life is a, a damn shit show and you gotta start, you gotta start all over again. <laughs> all right, I'm gonna get to the questions I ask everybody real quick. Um, the first, oh, you know what? I might have to text this to you because I send a, I don't know if I can share the screen while you're on phone. Okay. So, um, oh, it's not gonna work. Uh, I don't know if I can share a screen while I'm on phone. Let me try it. I think, no, I think it'll work. I think I have done this with somebody before. Okay, so... Can you see this picture? Oh, okay. Yes. I am okay, so I, uh -huh. I have a product line and these are all phrases that go on keychains. And I ask oh, every no. guest to pick not necessarily which phrase they like the most, but which one they feel they want as a reminder in their life right now and why. And then also send you the keychain, but like which one you feel like you need to be reminded of. I'm a badass. Oh, and why are you choosing that one? I feel because of everything that I've gone through in the last year. Like a friend said to me recently, if there was ever a fucking 2021 comeback story, <laughs> you are it. Like she was like, it's amazing what a year can do. And I think if somebody told me a year ago when I was on the bathroom floor and begging my partner to come back to me, that I would be here being able to laugh at the story and feel really sorry for that pathetic little girl who was there begging someone to love her, I would be like, no, there's no way, you know? And I barely recognize that woman anymore. Like I barely recognize her, but I have to remind myself of, wow, you've accomplished so much because this would have broken anybody. And yet you got up and you decided to make your mess, your message and be like, okay, what can I do with this? And so I think sometimes I don't give myself credit for what I've been able to accomplish, right? I always look at what I should have been doing or could have been doing instead of being like, hey, man, like you're the fucking shit, <laughs> right? So I like, you know, like I'm, I'm a badass. Like I would love to remind myself I'm a badass at all times. Yeah. Awesome. I will be sending you that yeah. <laughs> to remind you. What is something you do to raise your joy levels when you're like not feeling so, yeah. so great? I'm a big lover of comedy. And so one of the things that I love doing, um, Pandora has an amazing comedy station. So I will listen to like either the Chris Rock station, Dave Chappelle. And I just love listening it into my car or on my walks. 
Um, and that's the other thing I do. I jog also too, that that also helps to really clear my mind and put me in a better state. So those are the things like whenever I feel like I'm what I will call my slump, I'm like, okay, what, and, and I then also try and really limit social media because I find social media really sometimes gets in my head. And so I try to be like, okay, what things will um, bring you joy? And laughter has always been the best thing for me. Like I love good comedy and smart comedy. Yeah. I love that you yeah mentioned Pandora because I'll do that too. And I yeah. used to do it all the time and I've been trying to remember to do it more to listen to comedy instead of putting music on. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Uh, I ask uh, everybody how to apply this phrase to their own life. What is easiest for you is not always what is best for you. Mm. So it could be a habit, a way of being, just like the first thing that comes to you. What is easiest for me is to blank. What is best mm-hmm. for me is blank. What is easiest for me as someone who is an emotional eater um, is to go to the drive through at McDonald's. And if I can't make up my mind between McDonald's or Burger King, I go to both (laughs) and eat my feelings away. (laughs) And what is best for me is to go for a run and cook something really healthy while listening to some good comedy. So I've been that person more so than the other person. But there are some days I'm just like, this is a McDonald's day, boy. <laughs> yeah, sometimes you just need that thing that need that is going to like. <laughs> yeah. So that's what I've realized about me. Yeah. So I'm just very aware of when I'm emotionally eating and to check myself and go, oh, hey, what is this about for you? Because it's not hunger. There's something going on. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that is like, it's not like, oh, you never let yourself have it anymore. But it's also then just the awareness of, you know, like, man, I am a really in a like this yeah. place right now. And I know that I want this because of this. Like, it's something like, even though you're still doing that thing that maybe not be yeah. so healthy, like it's healthy that you're knowing what you're but doing you know. and that exactly. You know, yes. And it's in some ways can turn to compassion instead of like escapism. Like, yes. you know what? I still want this. <laughs> but yeah. Yes. Um, all right. The last question is the name of the podcast is claim it because I feel that so often we're putting our feelings outside of ourselves, like chasing it. Like once I have this, then I'll be ill enough. Once I have the perfect partner, once I'm, you know, that and I feel we can claim it at any time. And sometimes we need to do it every day. Sometimes we need to do it several times of the day mm-hmm. to remind ourselves we are enough. We are worthy, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. So what are you claiming for yourself right now? I'm claiming, and it's something that I say to myself every day, I have no lack. I experience no lack in any areas of my life. And I say this at all times to remind myself, I have no lack. There's no lack in any areas of my life. I'm full on love. I'm full on resources. I'm full on friendships. I'm full on money. There is no lack in my life. So that is something that because I have this, I used to have this fear and sometimes it creeps up of, you know, I'm going to run out of money or no one's going to be there to love me or my friends are never going to show up. No one's going to buy my book. (laughs) You know, like it's all all of those things. So I have to remind myself, I have no lack. There's no lack in my life. I'm always full of resources and abundance. I love that so much because, and then, yeah, that's a good thing to say when those thoughts start to creep in to remind yourself, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Because it is, it's easy to like, 
it's easy to make up ridiculous stuff. Like, oh, my friend doesn't care about me. It's like, because I haven't talked to them in a couple weeks. But like, oh, right, because that friend is busy doing stuff. So- like, we can make up these crazy, crazy stories. Crazy stories. <laughs> crazy, crazy About stories. nothing. Like, actual yes. nothing. <laughs> Actually nothing. And if you talk to the person, they're like, what? <laughs> Especially, I think, as me, and as a writer, like, sometimes I'm just like, stop, Trey. Because I will spin a whole story, you know, beginning, middle, and end with a climax in there, right? <laughs> and, and, and I will create whatever story I think. So sometimes I have to go, is that really true? Or is this a story you're making up? Yeah. And that's, oh, I try to re-edit myself from like, yeah, I said crazy. That instead like comment on how creative we are. Our yes. minds are so creative. creative. Yes. <laughs> and that's me. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much, Trey. All right. Wow. How awesome is Trey? If you want to find more on her, treyanthony.com. On social media, she's at Black Girl in Love. Go get her book, Black Girl in Love with Herself, and um, and share it with people in your life. Also, for full show notes, things we mentioned, you can find all podcast notes at yourdryologist.com slash podcast for all things me, yourdryologist.com, and I'm at yourdryologist. And I and the ghost, the guest, the ghost, <laughs> both love hearing from you. So share the episode, tag us, DM us, and let us know what you resonated with. Um, I'm happy to also receive, I mean, I'm not so happy, but I do also enjoy hearing feedback, even if it's critical. Like, I know I say like a lot. I just said it in the talking about the likes, things I'm working on. But um, yeah, so more critical feedback helps as well. We're all growing, living, learning. Feedback can really, it's, I mean, I don't know if anybody like loves hearing critical feedback, but it helps. Anyway, <laughs> let's leave on the final thought of what can you love about yourself right now? What can you, what do you? Think of the first thing that pops into your mind, like your energy, your heart, the way you show up for people, the way you care for yourself, how you nurture yourself. What can you name right now that you love about yourself? All right, catch ya next episode.